0: So last week, I mentioned something that I want to say again, and that is the obvious truth that you relate with people differently based off of their kind of relationships, their, their place in this world, right? You, you speak to a police officer very different than your friend, well, hopefully. Uh, you speak to your spouse different than you speak to your neighbor. You speak to your children better, different than you would speak to a teacher and so on. And, and we have different relational dynamics that will drastically change the way we communicate. Now, going at another level deeper, that doesn't say anything about the kind of relationship you have with that per- specific kind of person. For instance, you could have a relationship with a uh, person and you know that they despise you. And that's going to drastically affect the way you relate to them. Maybe you avoid them, maybe you're cold to them, whatever it is. Or on the other hand, maybe you know the person adores you. And that is going to drastically affect the way you relate with them. Either maybe you avoid them again, or or you, you want to see them, you want to talk to them. And that is really relevant to when you think about the way we relate with God. Based on who you think He is... Positionally, kind of like when I was talking about cops or parents or teachers or students and so forth, will drastically affect the way you relate with him. But even more, the way you perceive how he feels about you and how you feel about him is going to drastically affect the way you communicate with him. If you have this stinking suspicion that God is just disappointed in you, has a constant sense of judgment towards you, that he despises you, that he doesn't like you, that he's always disappointed and he's a stingy kind of God that's always calculating, then the chances are you're going to avoid him. You may pray when you have to pray or when you're about to die or something is in great need, but you're going to avoid a God like that if you think he just kind of doesn't like you. On the other hand, if you feel like God is delighting in you and looks on you with a smile and is just eager to hear from you. That's going to drastically affect the way you relate with Him, right? Chances are you're going to be a lot more prone to going to talk to Him. Just like my kids, when they see that I'm high strung, if I'm stressed, Daddy is not doing well, guys, they know. Sometimes even when they know, they don't care. Though they will be a little slower to approach me. And and I don't say that with pride. I I wish I wasn't like that at times. But there are other times where I'm just beaming with joy and happiness and peace is coming through me. and, And they just feel like they can just hop right into my lap and tell me anything that's on their heart. Now, if you focus on God primarily as a God or a Lord or a King chances are your prayers are con- going to be more stiff, more distant, more formulaic. And you can even pray a lot, but you're going to lack intimacy and joy based on how you relate. And, and what I've learned is that the more and more I relate with God as a father, as a generous, good father, the more I'm prone to pray, the more I want to pray, the more I want to talk with him. And so we are today finishing this mini-series that we just surprisingly found in the Gospel. We're just going verse by verse as we normally do. And it's interesting because one of the new values that we want to really highlight that's coming around the corner, the elders and I have been working hard around making new values. Not that these values aren't important, but but values that are easier for us to remember and regularly say and really try to embody. And the first one is is connected to being with God, being with Jesus. And it's so cool that we just happened to find this sermon series that we're not forcing, but it's just right here about connecting with God. And so we're ending this series that came across today. So let me quickly review if you haven't been here or if you've been here because you want to be reminded about this goodness. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ross reminded us, using the story of Mary and Martha, that there's one thing necessary to the Christian life that Jesus says. There's a lot of things that we gotta do, a lot of things that are important, but the most important thing that affects everything is sitting and being with Jesus. Listening to him. Sitting and being with him. And actually, he wants us to be with him. Contrary to what many people would feel. It's not necessary instead of everything, it's necessary for everything. So if you do this one thing, everything else comes free. But if you try to do everything, but you don't have this one thing, you don't have anything. And last week, we got to learn from Jesus how to pray. How do you pray? The disciples asked Jesus, how do you, how do you pray? Teach us to pray like John taught his disciples and so Jesus gave us this incredible model prayer that is not necessarily a prayer that you just kind of religiously run through but it's a it's an outline it's a framework in a way for us to connect with our heavenly father and Jesus shows us that it's not just as impo- it's just as important the order and the priority of your prayers than than just the content of your prayers. That the order matters, that you start with God first, then you get to your request. And that we see that God actually wants to hear our request. And that prayer is fundamentally relational. And if you focus in on him as a person, as a father, it changes the way you speak. Then you, you focus less on, am I saying the right word, but you focus on the person you are speaking to. So this is all that God is welcoming us into. And so this week, keep in mind the context. Jesus has continued to teach us and answer this question of, teach us how to pray. And so this week, we're going to be focusing on who we're praying to. Who is this God that we're praying to? Well, we're going to see that he is a generous father. He is a generous father. And this changes everything in the way you approach him. And furthermore, Jesus teaches us how to approach him. As a child to a father, in the in, in a child with no sense of boundaries No sense of boundaries so, so God wants to relate with us As a father to a child And he wants us to relate to him Like a child with no social skills No sense of boundaries So we're going to get into that a little more So Jesus is going to do this By sharing two illustrations That are going to reveal The heart of the father Okay. So if you want to know what God is like Tune in And what he's going to do is he's going to use two arguments from the lesser to the greater. And if you're not familiar with that terminology, lesser to greater, Jesus is basically going to say something like this. If someone would do this, then obviously the Father would do so much more. Twice he's going to do that over and over again. He's going to show us a ridiculous, absurd situation and say, if God's going to do that, of course he's going to be better than that. All right? So let's get into it. Verse 5. So, in verse 5, we see this picture of a friend who will go to another friend, another neighbor, at midnight. And I'm going to just paraphrase. But imagine this. You're in first century Palestine. You're in bed with a bunch of kids and your wife, most likely, in your single-bedroom house. That doubles as your kitchen and everything else. And in the middle of the night... And remember, back then, they didn't have TVs or electricity, so midnight was actually middle of the night. You went to sleep with the sun, and you rose with the sun, and all of a sudden you hear, in the middle of the night, hey, friend, neighbor, whoever you are, he doesn't use a name, I have someone who came out from out of town, and I had nothing to give them. And remember, they don't have proper refrigeration. It's not like, oh, let me just get my box of Twinkies or my box of rations or whatever it is, my power bars. They have nothing. They have what they have for the day. They would go to the baker. Everybody would be shopping at different uh, different um, marketplaces and you would get what you need for that day. And so this person is saying, listen, I wasn't expecting this friend and they're not gonna go to an inn and I am not going to shame, be ashamed to say that I have nothing to offer them. Because that would be the ultimate shame. To, to host someone, even if it was unexpected, even if it was in the middle of the night, and not be able to provide for them. And so, listen, friend, open the door and give me some bread. Because if it's not, then the shame is actually going to be upon our whole neighborhood as well. Because that, in that society, they had a very collective mindset. So one person uh, didn't provide and wasn't hospitable, that reflected poorly on the entire community. So it was a communal affair. Okay, So that's the kind of mindset you have. And so what does this neighbor say? He says, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. Poor guy. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, Jesus is sharing this because this is, This is not going to happen. His hearers, as they're listening to this, are going to be like, no one's going to say that. No one's, who would say that? I mean, even if you hated the guy, you just don't want to look like a stingy person. Because if you said no to that person who's banging on the door, what will they do? Hey, hey, next neighbor. Hey, Jim. Dan wouldn't wake up and give me bread. Can you give me bread? Oh yeah, I'll give you bread. I'm much better than Jim, right? Like We don't want this corporate kind of shame and everyone knows how stingy you are. But, but regardless of the motivation we see in verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, I'm using the NIV here because, it, because most people don't use the word impudence that the ESV uses, He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Okay? The point is that regardless if he's a good or generous friend or not, he will ultimately give what this guy needs because this guy is being just audacious, being shameless, being persistent. This friend... This, this phrase, shameless audacity, is this Greek word that's kind of tricky that people struggle with. But the reason why we struggle with it is because it's a combination of like two words, two senses that we understand. And, and that's like the word boldness and shamelessness combined is this Greek word. The definitive Greek dictionary says it like this. Lack of, check this out, lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Carelessness about the good opinion of others. It's, it's, a, it's a state of... I must have this, and I don't care what anyone thinks in my attempt to get this thing. That's the kind of, of attitude and approach this neighbor has for this bread. And so what's Jesus' point? His, his point is this. What reasonable neighbor would say no to a man like that? And the answer is, there wouldn't be. It just That just that doesn't happen. <laughs> in general, it doesn't happen. And so keeping this in mind we look at the next verse. Because what Jesus is about to do is he is calling us to look at this ridiculous situation and say, hey, you see how this person here would would definitely be generous and give bread in this crazy state? God, God is not like that, neighbor. He is generous. He's not stingy. He will be generous. And so he's showing you how bad this guy is and that even a bad guy would do something good in this moment and say, God is nothing like that. He's even better. So let's look at verse 9, which is Jesus is applying what to do, helping us understand what to do in light of this parable. Verse 9. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you. There seems to be a progression in these verbs. Asking, seeking, knocking. It is continual. It's not ask once and knock once, right? Because if, if you're in the middle of the night and you hear a thud, what, what do you say? Honey, what was that? What was that? If you don't hear it again, what do you do? I'm going to bed. But if you keep hearing it, that's something. That's a person. Or for our house, a mouse, because a we have mice issues in our walls. They have parties over our heads. Um, but we sealed them recently, so I think they're, they're starving out right now. But, but if you hear the knocking, you're like, some somebody stop that! I'm sleeping. And you have to respond. And the, the verbs here are not once, but they're continual. They're asking, they're seeking, they're knocking. And Jesus' whole point is saying, this is what God wants you do to do to him. He wants this kind of pursuit for requests to him. He is not like that neighbor. He's much better. Now, a common occurrence like this happens in my home, okay? I, this happens regularly. I'm I'm in the bathroom, sitting, doing what you do in the bathroom, sitting. And all of a sudden, while I'm in the bathroom, having digestive issues or whatever, I hear someone, one of my kids, one of my four kids saying, dad, dad, where's dad? And all of a sudden, I kind of shriek, hoping, hoping that I can hide in the bathroom. Dad, where's dad? And when I was a a young dad, some of you young dads who who kids are just learning to say, Dad, you you guys don't know this yet, but, but you have this thought. You're like, well, listen, nobody has endless energy. If you wake them out, the kids will stop. Now, I was naive. I did not realize kids have endless energy when they're trying to seek you out. I thought, maybe if I hide here long enough, they would just be like, Dad, okay, I'll just give up." No. Dad! Dad! Where's Dad? Mercy, he's in the bathroom! Now, a rational, mature person would say, oh, in the bathroom, okay, I'll wait, but my kids are neither mature nor rational at this age, and so they go, Dad, Dad, what are you doing? They'll mock, what are you doing? And the younger they are, they won't knock, they'll just open the door and throw the the door into my leg, because our, our, if you guys use my bathroom, it's right there, It's bam, onto your legs, right? And your kneecaps. Don't Dad, what are you doing? I, I'm doing what you do in the bathroom. I'm in the bathroom. I'm in the bathroom, Mercy. Dad, can you play with me? Can you play store with me? Store is this game where she acts like she has a, a store with a cat. Can you play? St- no, I'm in the bathroom. Well, can you play after? Maybe. Which is code for, no, leave me alone. Dad, and she knows. She knows, She's old enough to know that I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding her. Dad, can you play after? Okay, I'll think about it. And that, that is my, my last-ditch attempt to like say, hey, I'm thinking about it. And, and, and if I'm really exasperated, I'm like, leave me alone. Let me think about it. Okay? If you ask again, I'll say no. Okay? That's, that's like my most manipulative, like, threatening phrase. If you ask again, I'm going to say no. But eventually... She can wear me down. Dad! And you know what? I'll sometimes say yes. If I I literally can. You know, sometimes I can. I'm, I'm leaving for work or whatever. But if I can, I'll say yes, not because I like store. I don't like playing store, to be honest. But I like Mercy. I like her. And I love my daughter. And she can wear me out. And I enjoy being with her. And my children can get away with that because they're my children and I love them. Children can get away with a lot that we can't as adults. If any of you here try to do that with me while I'm in the bathroom, things will go down really differently. Okay? I won't be very happy to see you. And I think prayer with the Father is like this. At least this is how God wants us to be with Him. Notice, I just said, God wants us to be like that with him. That sounds nonsensical. Why would God want us to have that kind of ridiculous, audacious, immature, without boundaries approach? Well, God is not like me. See, God is not like that neighbor. He's so much better. He's so much kinder. So much more patient. So much more generous. See, God is not like me, and yesterday, I was cleaning the kitchen, and, and at one time, three kids asked me a question, different questions, simultaneously, at the same time, and I'm trying to clean this thing, and I'm hearing Mercy, and Elijah, and, and Eden, and maybe Hope's like falling down the stairs at the same time, and I'm just like, stop, one at a time, And and I could have even said And I thought this because I've been working on this sermon I could have said I'm not God (laughs) And that's the beautiful thing God can simultaneously hear All of our mess, all of our requests Whether they're good or they're selfish Simultaneously be 100% dialed in With infinite energy Infinite patience Infinite generosity and care for Every one of our needs He can handle it He's not like your dad and he's not like me Because you guys know You ask too many questions for dad and it's over, right? (laughs) Unless you have a pushover kind of dad, right? But even pushover dads have a a point of break. God doesn't have that point. He can handle your questions. He can handle your requests over and over. He's not cranky. He's not irritable. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't sleep. Psalm 121.4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't use the bathroom. God doesn't have a bad day where you don't know what you're going to get that day. Oh, what kind of dad are we going to have today? Is he going to be off the handle? Is he going to be, you know, are we going to be walking on eggshells today when he's here? God's not like that. God is not trying to hide in the bathroom or some room in the house while the kids are looking for him. His ears are bent towards our direction. Look at Psalm 3415. What a beautiful passage. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. They're toward the righteous, not available. They're toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. What, what is that saying? It's saying that there's a, a bent towards us. He's listening. He's looking. He's waiting to hear. It's not a, I'm doing my thing, and oh, oh, sure, sure. Come on in, son. Come on in, daughter. Yeah, you can talk to me. Let me let me finish this. Okay, yep, yeah, what's up? What do you want, right? No, there's a, there's a towardsness that he has towards us. Do you believe that? I mean, really, do you believe right now that God wants to hear from you? I can hear some of your heads saying, No, why would he want to hear from me? And and that's one of the goals of this passage, to help us see that he wants to hear from us. He can handle it. Verse 10 then goes somewhere that's often misunderstood by many, including me. Verse 10. Does this mean God gives us everything we ask? Do this. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, knocks. It will be open. When I first read this as a 15-year-old, <clears throat> I took this as an absolute promise that anything I ask, God will give it if I seek and knock hard enough. And I remember getting cut from JV basketball. Okay, it was pretty humiliating because I was on the team and then they had a second tryout for the football players once they're done with their season. And this guy named Steven knocked me off the roster. And I talked about basketball a lot because it was my identity that I was fighting to give to Jesus. And I remember I was in French class, which I got like a C minus in. And I was sitting there with my little pocket Bible that I just would put in my, my jacket. I pulled it out and I turned to Matthew 6, which has almost identical verse. This one, Matthew's version, almost identical. And I sat there, and I'm openly crying before class starts. <laughs> like, and, and, I, and I have the Bible open with Matthew 6, saying, God, I asked, I sought, and I even put the work in. I got the DVDs, I've been practicing my butt off, why did I leave the team? I really struggled with God crying there. And other people are like, oh my gosh, what is wrong with this guy? And I'm just like pouring out my heart before the Lord saying, God, God why didn't you answer my prayer? Why am I not on JV? And what I didn't understand is that whenever you read any passage, you read it with the rest of the Bible in mind. I heard one uh, guy, Greg Kokel, he's an apologist, says, never read a verse. Never read a verse. I think that's a really helpful thing to keep in mind because usually a verse is within a context within a uh, stream of thinking. Now what's the context that we've just been reading about? Well, what was last week? The Lord's Prayer. And what would you be praying in the Lord's Prayer? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. In Matthew's version, which I didn't share last week, your will be done. And if you have that heart about his kingdom first, his will be done, his glory, that's going kind to of drastically affect what you ask and what you seek and what you knock about, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, and, and what, what, what else is in this context? If we go further back, what, what does Jesus call us to do? Like Mary and Martha, he calls us to sit with him and listen to him. And so what will happen if you're regularly listening to him and you're regularly saying, God, it's all about you. It's not about me. It's about your glory, not my will, but your will. What would that do to your request? It would drastically influence him? radically shape your request to the Lord. And so when you ask with that heart being shaped with God first, then you're going to increasingly pray the things that are in God's heart. You're going to increasingly want the things that God wants. And oftentimes, the reason why God doesn't give us the answer to our (laughs) prayers that we hope for is because they're not what He wants. And we don't know that yet. And I'm going to get to that a little more later. This parable is both calling us to see God rightly as a generous father, but also calling us to a certain kind of prayer attitude, prayer way. What do I mean by that? Let me ask you this question. Do you persevere in shameless, audacious prayers? How much grit do you have when you pray for something you want that's on your heart? How long do you pray until you just give up and start to doubt God's goodness? Comes to mind George Mueller, the famous pastor and leader of many, many orphanages in Bristol, England. And in one of his biographies, it says this George Mueller prayed for one of his friends for more than 60 years. 60 years. That's older than most of us in this room. He wrote this never give up until the answer comes. He is not converted yet, but he will be. Come on, amen. I love that. Amen. And that puts me to shame because I will pray for six days and get tired. Six days and I'm discouraged. Come on, God, six days? Six days? You created the world, you can't answer my prayer in six days? Maybe six years, 60 years. I'm not saying that it's always going to be 60 years, but I think that's a challenge for us, showing how easily we can just default into discouragement and doubt when God doesn't give us what we want our way, in our time. And how often for us parents here do we have to shepherd our children to know that there are some things that we just can't give them gift to them yet? Right? We all know that. Even those of you who are not parents, you intuitively know that. There are some things that are not right for certain ages. Or maybe it's right for that age, but not right for that particular child at that time. We get that intuitively. We get that in the world. And yet, when we look at God, we're like, well, God must have different, you know, way. You know? No, it's, it's the same. It's the same. See, it's not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering. The whole context of this passage is that he's eager to give, he wants to give, he looks to give. But if we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, then it shows us that we don't want it very much. God, help me be more like you. All right, pray it. God, save my neighbor, save my spouse, save my blank. And then we give up after a couple of days or weeks or months. It shows prayer is one of the most exposing things that what's inside of our hearts. What we truly believe about God's heart. What we truly love and care for. What truly is important to us. Oftentimes, it's not God that needs to be moved, but it's us. And prayer is a training ground for our hearts to start moving in line with His. And that's why God has not answered some of your prayers that you've been seeking. It's because he's moving your heart in the process. He cares more about your process and where your heart's going to be than you always getting what you want. Like a good father would. I want to challenge you, church, this week, just to make it easy, just a sample size, easy, to elevate the audaciousness, the ridiculousness of your prayers. I want you to get embarrassing with your prayers. Ask wild things that only make sense in light of a ridiculously generous, good Father who's all-powerful with infinite wisdom, infinite resources. Pray those kind of prayers that if someone listened, be like, "Ooh, wow, you're asking a lot." That honor's gone. I am honored. My kids, the younger they are, regularly ask me just ridiculous things that "Can we just buy that?" No, I, I don't have a billion dollars. We can't buy them, right? But I'm honored that they think that I could, right? Dad, could you beat up that dad? Nope, definitely couldn't. But thanks for thinking I could, right? I'm honored by that kind of faith by my kids. Dad, get me a unicorn. Nope, can't do that, right? Dad, give me a rainbow with a unicorn on it. Nope, can't do that, right? But, but there's something about my heart that delights that my children want. Think that I can do something like that. And yet in the realm of God, He can do those things. He isn't limited. And when you ask audacious, shameless prayers, you show how much faith and confidence you have in his power, his ability, and in his heart. But when your prayers are small, oh bro, you probably couldn't do this. Or you probably don't want to do it. I know you can do anything you want, but you probably don't because you're kind of like a grouch and you don't like being you're stingy. You know, it shows a lot about your heart. And God wants to see your heart trusting in His goodness. I think sometimes we hold back in our prayers because we secretly think that God's stingy, He's just disappointed in us, and maybe all He wants is to sanctify us. So, so why, why pray? And he's just going to say no anyway and throw some trials at me, right? Indeed, He does use trials, and indeed, He does say no at times for our good. But He, at the core of His heart, wants good for us. He is generous. wants us to have the world, and indeed, you will have the world. You will inherit the world. His heart is big towards us. So church, this week, I want you to pray with no sense of boundaries for your unbelieving ones. Pray for the most unlikely person to be saved. The person that makes no sense on paper would be saved and trusting in Jesus. Pray for a promotion that makes no sense in light of your credentials or your history. Pray for favor with your neighbor who you've only had a bad history with. Pray for ridiculous things and just see how God wants to show you how good he is and how powerful he is. Now let's keep going further and looking at the goodness of the Father. Let's look at verse 11. I'm going to do what Dale called my signature, and that's having you read while I drink water. <laughs> Would you read? Verse 11 out loud. Verse 11 and 12 on the screen, please. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? All right. This is a crazy illustration. I mean, this is like from some twisted M. Night Shyamalan kind of mind or something. <laughs> this is some twisted sick dad. I mean, imagine this picture. So my son Elijah comes up to me. Hey, Dad, um, can I have some bread? Which they ask for all the time. Okay, especially at night when we come home from church or something like that. <laughs> dad, dad, can I have some bread? And I'm like, sure, son. <laughs> um, no, what he says, he says fish is Sorry, Matthew's Matthews, bread. If a son asked for fish, my son would never ask me for a fish. Okay? But let's say he did ask for a fish. And I'm like, sure, son, I'll give you a fish. And then he turns around and I hand him, a, here, a live, a live serpent. Just throw a, a snake at him. And I just laugh maniacally like a sick person, right? That would be traumatizing and very, very strange for me to do. He goes further. If they ask for an egg, hey, dad, can I have some scrambled eggs? Sure, son. And I just slide a plate full of scorpions, right? This is like some next-level horror, right, film. This is ridiculous. What's Jesus' point? Listen, no father would do that. I mean, yeah, you could find maybe more. Like Hitler maybe had done that. I don't know, right? But fathers don't do that. Even bad fathers know that when they're at they're, their children ask for reasonable essentials, they're not going to just give them some sick thing to torture them. So, what is Jesus doing by sharing this such absurd illustration? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Okay. We're going to get to the Holy Spirit minute. We're going to get to the Holy Spirit part in a minute. It's so good. But let's focus on the first half. Who is he talking to right now? It's your question. Who is he talking to? Disciples. 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 He's speaking to the disciples. And he calls them evil. He's like, you know, just casually, well, you who are evil, right? It's like, whoa, Jesus, like, come on, right? And I think that that's kind of offensive when we read that, calling someone evil. Because in our culture, like I mentioned Hitler, like we've reserved the word evil for like only extreme psychopaths, like genocidal leaders, like Hitler. But, but according to Jesus and according to God that, that all are evil, according to God, compared to God, compared to his standard. And I know that's offensive, but all, all it would take is for us to just say, hey, let's take up every thought, every bad thought you've ever thought. We'll just put it on the screen. And we'll see how long you last in this room before you run off. Right? We all have different, varying degrees of evil, different expressions of evil. But the Bible is very clear, and society is very clear, that man, apart from God's grace, is evil. And we need God's grace. That's true. And so he calls them evil. But that's part of his point. <clears throat> if you who are evil know how to give generally good gifts to children, if you can, how much more your Heavenly Father? How much more? He is arguing from the lesser, us, evil evil dads like us, to the greater, God. He's trying to show such an extreme case of negligence and abuse and ridiculousness to show you how much further God is on the other side. He's not like, yeah, yeah, you know how, like, you know, there's twisted gods out there who would do that. I mean, God's a little better than that. He's better than that. No, it's like, no, no. You see how, how far and twisted this is? God is on the opposite spectrum. That much better. That's what he's doing right here. This whole section from last week starts with our Father in Heaven. And it ends speaking about fathers again. And it's Father's Day, which is cool. What's God's point? What's Jesus' point? Is that prayer is a family affair. Prayer cannot be disconnected from family. It cannot be something that is only to some god or idol or some lord. Prayer, Christian prayer, is inherently familial. It's intimate. It's relational. It's with your dad to a child. That changes everything. And it's not just a dad, it's a very, very generous dad who's eager to give good gifts to his children. God won't give bad gifts, though sometimes we will interpret them poorly. He only gives good gifts. Now let's talk about the greatest gift. We'll get the last half, second half of verse 13. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What the heck where is this coming from? I remember every time I've read this over the years I'm like, okay, hey, why is the Holy Spirit coming out of here? Luke's really big on the Holy Spirit. You see that in Luke and Acts. But why is he bringing the Holy Spirit? It's for years it's thrown me off. If you read Matthew Matthew's gospel, this his version doesn't include the Holy Spirit. He just says like give you, you know, all things. But the whole climax of this passage is coming up to this point. It leads to the Holy Spirit being the greatest gift that the Father could ever give us. See, because all of us have seen rich kids, maybe you're one of the rich kids, who say, I would give anything for my dad to have worked less and given me less if that means I had more of him. Right, we all know that, or we've seen those sappy movies with the kid, who's rich kid, who wants his dad in his life. See, it's one thing for a dad to lavish his kids with things in replace of him. It's another thing entirely to give him himself. And that's what this passage gives us. That yes, you can read this and be like, "Well, what about the things I want?" But who cares if you get that new blank or get that cute girl or that cute guy or that promotion or that healing that you so badly need or whatever it is. God's greatest gift is himself. Mm -hmm. And that's the greatest answer to prayer that he gives us, the great promise he gives us in Luke. And if that doesn't make your heart sore, then you think so little of him. And you think so greatly of the created things. You've elevated the created things over the creator. And God is saying, yeah, I can give you things, but I'll give you something so much better. I'll give you myself. Yeah. The greatest answer to our prayers is more of God. And in this passage, you see the whole Trinity. You see the Son, Jesus, teaching us about prayer to the Heavenly Father who, will promise, who promises to give us the Spirit, all working together in communion with Him, relationship with Him. See, what what do we get by having the Holy Spirit? Let me do a quick primer and fly through this real quick. This is short but not exhaustive. With the Holy Spirit, the Spirit reveals the beauty of Christ, removes the veil that blinds us from the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, our need for Him, our sinfulness, and removes it to see Him. 2 Corinthians 4. The Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us to live the life we could never live. Acts 1 and Romans 8. The Holy Spirit gives us fellowship with God. Second Corinthians 13. The Spirit seals us and keeps us until Jesus returns. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Yeah, he may not give you that thing, or that girl, or that guy, or that, that promotion, or whatever it is, but he gives you him. We often want a lot of things from God, but he has promised himself. And, and here, here's the, the, the kicker. The scriptures, God has promised that we will inherit the whole earth. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you ultimately will get the Lord. You'll get everything. Yeah. You get everything with him. It, it, it's it's kind of like God is offering us a key to a house. I'm not trying to use the Holy Spirit as a key, but, but just for this illustration. He gives us a key. I don't have any keys to me, but imagine that key. Hey, take this key. It gives you, it's a key to my entire kingdom. And it gets you everything. And we look at the key and we're like, I don't, I don't want this key. We're like, no, 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 it's, it's not the key I'm giving you. It's everything that comes with the key. The, the key is a way for more. But if you're like a little kid, immature, you're like, but, but that's just a key. I don't want the key. I want all that stuff. No, 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 no. no. If you get this, you get that. We're like, but I want that. No, I know that's the whole point. Like, if you get this, you get everything. You try to get with me? But the, the Lord is giving us himself. If you have him, you have everything. But so often, we want those things, not God. So that's why Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what does it profit a man who gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And so what do we have? We have many men, many women in our world chasing the world. And not realizing that if they chase God, they get the world. They get everything. You get the creator, you get everything for free. Some of us have been offended and doubt God because He didn't give you something you prayed for. But don't you see, if He gives you the Spirit, He's promising you everything. Maybe not in your timing, maybe not in your way, but far better than you know. This passage gets at our heart and challenges us with this question What do you really want from God? What do you really want from Him? What do you really want from God? What do you want? As some sappy movie says over it, what do you want? What do you want from him? What do you want from God? This passage reveals, if, is God your great treasure? Is that the greatest gift he can give you is himself? Or are you just using him to get something you really want? This is, these are heavy questions worth sitting about, sitting on. If you don't know this God like this, this gracious Heavenly Father, and don't have a relationship like this, knowing Him as His generous, gracious Father, all you have to do is ask, and He'll grant you the Spirit. But there's a big problem. The problem is that you fight against Him every day, and I do too. The problem is you want to be God too. You want to have autonomy and control. But God is gracious, and He's forgiving. He's forgiving. And His forgiveness has no limits, no matter how dark your, your present, your past, or your future will be. All you gotta do is ask. All you gotta do is turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And God will grant you the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will adopt you as one of His own children to relate with Him as a, a son or a daughter relates with a Father. And then one day when He returns, you're gonna inherit everything. What a sweet gift. What a sweet God. And if you want that and you don't have that, please talk to somebody tonight. We'd love to walk with you through this journey. Now let me give you a couple more applications as we kind of wind down our time. What God, what kind of God we're dealing with and what kind of way we relate with Him. I'm going to go back to prayer. Think about the way we view and relate with God. I'm going to share a couple of words from Tim Keller who taught me a lot about different ways we approach God. He says this, there are two approaches, primary approaches to God. It's gonna be on the screen, I think. One is to say, God, be my boss. I'm gonna live a good life. Please then, because I'm living a good life, you should hear my prayer. I worked, and thus you owe me. That's one approach. And that, I would say, is the pervasive, common approach among many in the world. The other approach is this. God, be my father. I can't live a good life, but because Jesus has done it for me, and because Jesus has died for me, I refuse anymore to be my own savior and lord. And I rest in him alone for my salvation. Therefore, hear me in prayer, because I'm your little child. Those are two fundamentally different ways of relating with God. They're two different religions. God is boss, God is father. Saved by my efforts, saved by Christ's efforts. Listen to me because I've worked for it, or listen to me because Christ has worked for it, and now I belong to you. Which one do you fall into more? Keller says it this way, with the boss approach, your prayer life will be anxious. Your prayer life will be formal. It will be intermittent. It will only happen when you're desperate, and when God doesn't come through, you wonder, what's wrong? Because an employee expects to understand an employer. But a child doesn't really expect to understand a father. The child just knows the father loves him or her, and therefore kind of expects the father to do things that he or she doesn't understand. Big people do that. They, they do things that we don't understand. But I know he loves me. Are you praying like a calculating employee or a trusting child? Sometimes I struggle with God's wisdom and what he answers or how he answers it. And Keller helps me here. He says this, and this is you know one of those things that you can copy and paste and put on Twitter or whatever you do or put it in your journal. Your father gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Let me say that again. Your father gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Our issue is that our knowledge and understanding is so limited, so we demand and beg and pray for things that we would never dream of asking if we knew all that God knew. If we had the same priorities as Him. We truly don't know what's best for us like our Father does. And if you have walked with Christ longer than a couple of years, you know that to be very true. And the older you get in Christ, the more you know how much better He knows for your life than you do. How many times have I prayed for things and doubted his goodness And just a couple years or even months later, I'm like, ooh, thank you for not hearing my prayer. Thank you, God, for ignoring that prayer and not just giving in because I was demanding or pouting. <laughs> Church, when we pray, pray knowing who we're praying to. When, we're, when we pray, we're praying to someone who has everything we need, everything that is needed to answer prayer. Let me explain. He has a trifecta. If you pray to someone who is loving, but not wise, then they may answer your prayer, but they may make some huge mistakes as they answer your prayers. Because they don't have the wisdom on how to exercise their love. On the other hand, maybe the person is loving, but not powerful. Then maybe they want to do good for you, and their heart's out to you, but they're impotent to be able to do anything good for you. Or maybe they're powerful, but not loving, and so they don't give a rip for you and won't do anything for you. See, you need a God who's all three. Wise, loving, and powerful. And in our God, in our Heavenly Father, we have all three coming together. Isn't that good? It is good that He is wiser and more loving and more powerful than us. Because He has the ability to discern what is good for us, ultimately. And if we keep that in mind, it changes everything in the way we pray, how much we persist in prayer, and listen, how we respond when we don't get the things we pray for. Mm -hmm. If you know that God is all wise, all loving, all powerful, then it's going to drastically affect the way you respond when your prayers don't come answered. But if you, inside of your heart, have a suspicion that he's not that wise, he's not that loving or good, not that powerful, then you're going to doubt very quickly upon unanswered prayers. Again, prayer reveals for hearts. Sometimes I I don't understand why God does what he does. Charles Spurgeon helps me, one of my favorite preachers, been dead, been with Jesus for hundreds of years now. I love this. God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. That's so good, because so often we can't see his hand. God, what are you doing here? Why this way? Why this long? Why this hard? I don't get it. But if if you can't see his fingertips at that moment, his fingerprints in your life, then you can trust his heart. And you can trust a God who would die for you. Who would suffer for you innocently, though he deserved none of it? I can trust God like that. So maybe tonight you need to spend some time repenting to our Heavenly Father for not trusting Him, for doubting Him, for being quick to accuse Him of doing wrong, or not knowing how to rule your life or be God. Maybe you need to spend some time telling Him your frustrations with Him. He can handle it. In fact, He already knows them. Just sharing that, God. Why am I still single? God, why? I've done everything right in the book. God, why haven't I got that promotion? Why isn't that person saved yet? Why are we not reconciled with that one relationship? Why this? Why that? Pour out your hearts. He can handle it. Hi, now, it's Father's Day, and this passage is a lot about fathers. So I'm gonna, I want to I want to make a charge to the fathers. I'm going to ask all the fathers here to stand. Soon to be fathers too, like David expecting the father's thing I want to share a charge with you and, and shortly I'm going to we're going to pray for you as I've been studying this passage it's been really really challenging me on my parenting and my fathering because fathers we have been given a tremendous privilege of sharing a title with God father and when we share a title with God that comes with great responsibility and also what it does is it sets up our children to either have a more accurate view of God or a less accurate view of God and as our children grow up and get older and when they learn about God as their heavenly father it's either going to be easy for them to make that connection oh I know what God's like I know my dad He's so patient. He's so kind. He's so wise. Or you're going to make it potentially very hard for them to relate to God as a father because you're wrecking their view of father. Now, I know a lot of you men. In fact, I know almost all of you. And I don't think that that's the case. But I feel this conviction for myself in asking myself, are my kids seeing God rightly through me? One of the most quoted Old Testament passages he's Exodus 34 and it gets at the essence of the heart and the character of God it goes like this, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and my question that I've been wondering for myself when I ask for you is would your children describe you similarly would they use those kind of words to describe your parenting? Sam, Sam, a dad, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Or would they say, Sam, Sam, a dad, quick to anger, quick to ir- being disturbed and irritable, quick to being angry? Fathers, let's make a commitment. I don't want to beat on you guys more, because this culture beats on dads enough but let's make a commitment by the power of the Holy Spirit to show our kids what the hev- our Heavenly Father is like. To freshly make that commitment. I'm assuming a lot of you made this commitment before. Make it afresh. God, help us show our kids what the Father is like. And so if you're, if you're sitting around a father and you can, would you put your hand on their shoulder or lay your hand on them or stretch your hands and let's pray for the fathers right now. Go find a father. Go find Dale. Dale's on his own. Go, someone, go put your hand on his shoulder. Pray for him. There you go. Father, there. we come to you in Jesus' name. And only because of Jesus. And we know that in our culture, fathers are being assassinated. They're being destroyed. Our culture does not celebrate healthy fathering. It says stuff like fathers aren't necessary. They're helpful, but not necessary. We're swimming against the currents. And we ask, God, that you would impart upon our church healthy fathers. Fathers that show what the true father is like. That though we're imperfect, that we would live in such a way that our children see the smile of God through us. They see the patience of God through us. They see the loving tenderness and the faithfulness and the slow to anger of God through us. But Lord, we can't do it alone. We can't do it without your help. Holy Spirit, transform us. Give us the strength and let us look to you as the good Father that we can follow after. And that as you pour that kind of love and character upon us, that that would flow through us. Guard us, Lord. Keep us. Keep the Father's faithful strengthen the weary fathers who want to give up at times. Who want to just lash out because they're so exasperated by the pressures of being a father and of being in this world. Give us your strength and your courage. In Jesus' name. And all God's people say amen. 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 right, Please be seated. So church, as I close, this is the the last sermon I get the privilege of preaching to you for, for about three months. Dang it, why did I say that? I'm going to choke up. So we're we're ending this mini-series on prayer that God has graciously given us in the gospel and we weren't planning on it. And what we've seen is that our Heavenly Father has invited us into sweet, deep relationship with Him through prayer, through conversation, that we listen to Him through His Word and we respond back in prayer. And He has shown that He wants to hear from us constantly more than you realize. He wants to hear from us, believe it or not. Despite our mess, despite our history, he wants to hear from us. And he's not stingy. In fact, he's the most generous person who ever could be. And we can trust that he will give us the greatest gift, himself. And on this Father's Day, let's celebrate our earthly dad to give them honor that's due to them. But know that all good fathers point dimly to the greatest father. Any good that you've ever seen in your father is just a slight picture of how good the Heavenly Father is. So let's celebrate the greatest dad we could ever imagine or ask for. In church, let us take up his invitation to pray like a child with no sense of boundaries and never stopping because he's a generous father. Would you pray for me? Father, Thank you for being a good dad. And Father, I ask for those of us here who are carrying deep father wounds, who are relating with you in twisted ways because of how our earthly fathers soiled our understanding of what good fathering is, that you would redeem that for us. I pray in Jesus' name that you would come upon this entire church those who are with us, those who are at home, those who are with their earthly fathers right now, fathers, would you come upon us with a fresh revelation of your fatherhood, your good father. You delight in us. Heal years of wounds and years of neglect, years of abuse, years of pain. Show us, redeem fatherhood, Lord, in our church. And as you redeem fatherhood, and father, how we view you, let that drastically affect the way we talk with you. That we can come to you persistently, consistently, with shameless audacity. Because you're generous and you're good. And Lord, would you help us feel the weight and the magnitude and the joy that you have promised to give us yourself. What a good God. Who gives yourself. Many gods can give things. Many dads give things. But few give themselves. Thank you for giving us yourself. We love you, Father. Thank you for three years. Help us celebrate and enjoy your good gifts well. In Jesus' name, amen.